Hey folks, welcome back to the Office Hours. Today, Barry and I are in the office by ourselves. This is one of those episodes that we're, uh, if we're engaging in some transparency here, we have burned through our backlog and we're, and we're trying to <laughs> build gone. things up. So we were talking it's about, gone. Uh, you know, this because goodness gracious, you know, our recording schedule is very much dependent on our semester schedules. And so really this is. semester is just, things are not lining up. That being said, we have some really interesting stuff that we're recording with some guests. We just had to be a little creative with our timing. Um, so, but in order to, you know, make sure that we deliver to you the content you so desperately crave, all 12 <laughs> of you, um, who have really been hanging in there, <laughs> let me tell you, uh, you know, we're building up our, our catalog and actually this, we have some subject matter that we've been wanting to talk about for some time and this gives us an opportunity to do so. So, uh, that Indeed. being said, today's a little bit of a departure, uh, from our usual episodes, um, Barry is taking. I feel like we say that more often than we don't. It would be helpful if we actually had a routine. Uh, <laughs> it would be helpful if we had like a standard format, uh, right. something you know we could say. This is who we are, and that's probably also why we haven't been monetized. Anyway, so neither here nor there. Because when people ask for a sales pitch, it's like, "What is your uh, show about?" We just kind of shrug our shoulders, and that doesn't really translate uh, into a, a, a cashable. <laughs> Um, uh, product. So anyway, today Barry uh, is going to be running point on this one. Uh, he's done some deep dives into um, uh, sort of marketing to children and the aspects of like consumer and, and ethical matters and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in particular, Barry is going to get to air his lifelong grievance against G.I. Joe. Oh, G.I. Joe. Yeah, I don't know. D Gabriel, did you ever have G.I. Joes growing up? Uh, I did not. Uh, they weren't. You didn't? They weren't really my thing. I mean, I think I watched the cartoon, right, as a kid, you know, uh, being sure. being born in the 80s and raised in the 90s. It was, you know, uh, a pretty solid staple, right? So, yeah. but did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have G.I. Joes? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was, yeah. Um, did you have, Joe, I, did you have G.I. Joes or were there G.I. Joes circulated amongst your brood? <laughs> Actually, I was the only owner of G.I. Joe's in my family. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, it, coming from a family of six boys and one girl, you'd think there'd be more G.I. Joe's circulating amongst us. Nope. There were two G.I. Joe's in our house, and they were both mine, and I was the original owner of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interestingly enough, that, that was not a bigger thing. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but I don't know. But yes, I did have G.I. Joe's growing up. They were um, actually some of my more prized toys, one of which I kind of preserved. And early on, I, I just knew, like, this was one that I wanted to... This was not a play toy. This was a hold on to and just keep in as pristine condition as possible. Sure. And um, then I had another one whose uh, skin uh, turned, like turned to camouflage paint like some sort of a like they had this like if you got it wet like if you cooled it down yeah um then then the heat sensitive paint that they had put on it like it it painted his skin in like camo pattern of some sort why does that feel like a marketing flirtation with blackface <laughs> I don't know because like, it was like green and red paint, so okay, right. it definitely wasn't like. <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking of like that that like jungle camouflage, like black and green, that kind of stuff. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. No, nope, wasn't that <laughs> <laughs> okay? Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, that one that that figure ended in calamity. I, maybe that's what spurred my preservationist sort of feeling for the other one. Uh, it, it its leg broke off and just wasn't the same playing with a one legged. Um, 
it just doesn't have the same like romance to it, I suppose. I, that's un- I guess that's unfortunate. I tried. And I, I, I held I held on to him for a long time. Cool. I I just was like, well, this isn't this isn't fun anymore. Oh well. Well, I mean, you could always you could always play like you know. Um, uh, He's a veteran, and now he has to deal with the VA. Although that has, that is, uh, there's not a whole lot of upside to that, as I understand it. So, uh, all right. I I don't know that I uh, understood the complexity of the the VA well enough to like role play that one very well. Sure, um, sure. But that was an option. You're right. That was an option, underexplored, but an option nonetheless. Well, uh, the the thing is, did you know that GI Joe was the first action figure? Like, really? Yeah, obviously not the first doll. Dolls have been yeah. around forever. Yeah. But the what was considered the first action figure, yeah. G.I. Hmm. Joe is uh, from Hasbro. First action figure brought about in the, I believe it's 1960s. Yeah, 1964 released uh, the, the first G.I. Joe world's first action figure at least that's what hasbro is trying to claim and the smithsonian likes to back that up and i I think it just has to do more with like the um configuration of the doll itself that like Mm -hmm. the the number of joints uh the the ways and the posability of the doll as well and um I think also it being an action figure it's it's you know specifically aiming at trying to be more, um, I don't know, destructive in imaginary play rather mm-hmm. than like role, pure role playing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting and it definitely has some cultural relevance. It, it spurred a, a craze in toy manufacturing that, um, didn't exist before. Um, but that, that whole manufacturing phenomenon and the, the whole toy making phenomenon, it, didn't exist in its own bubble like it, it's it's certainly um influenced by a number of factors uh that happened outside of toy manufacturing which which yep. i find really interesting and i think it what what the reason why i want to bring this into our discussion is not because gi joe is what we consider like geek or nerd media necessarily i think I think an awful lot of today's um, what is marketed to us today as nerd media is is an awful lot of it, it gets blended in with also nostalgic media. Sure, you yeah. know that like we're because GI Joe was not like a show aimed at a, a geek crowd or anything like that. It was like hyper masculine, gut thrusting like guys going around like beating folks up and everything like that it was very much like the children's version of action movies of the era of the 60s 70s and 80s right yeah yeah it was uh trying to draw from that like professional wrestling crowd yeah yeah yeah. well and 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 also like the the phenomenon of like sylvester stallone and Mm -hmm. arnold schwarzenegger and like the the Mm -hmm. rise of the action flick especially in the 80s um, G.I. Joe was was reflecting that, right? When, like, when did you say that G.I. Joe first came out? G.I. Joe first was introduced in 1964. Okay, I was going to say, because I had to look it up real quick. We, I couldn't remember the exact year, but uh, we started in Vietnam in 65. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that, I don't, I'm not trying to suggest any sort of synchronicity there, but I'm wondering how much of our involvement in Vietnam and that being sort of the the major global conflict for the United States at the time uh, factored into the success of G.I. Joe over the years. Right. Well, and it's certainly, certainly you see reflections of that in, in the toys and that's not something that I looked at specifically. So unconfirmed as far as like the information that I have sure. available to me. But like, if you look at some of those first dolls that were manufactured or action figures, as they call them, mm-hmm. um, like it, you, you can see how they are trying to connect the consumer to real life soldiers of the day. Sure. And that's been a part of the GI Joe brand, uh, ever since its conception. Like we want, we want young, particularly little boys to feel some sort of realistic connection to our modern day military and military personnel. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they're, uh, they're not, uh, they're not until recently, they're not aimed at being, um, a part of a action fantasy. They're actually aimed at trying to be realistic. Right. So the uniforms are, are, um, trying to reflect a realism, the weapons that come with them are are realistic. The 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 boots are are all like trying to reflect exactly what uh, military personnel of the day are are working with. Uh, and and it's funny that I say that now as the GI Joe that was my favorite was had had you know his skin could turn camouflage by just jumping in the water or whatever. <laughs> that, that, oh my gosh. That reminds me of, I don't know if we've talked about it on here, but the, the, uh, the black bomber from DC. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Who was a Vietnam veteran. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the premise of a, of a, you know, a racist who says the N word and turns into a uh, black male with superpowers. Directly as a result of, in the context of the narrative, as a result of exposure to, I think, like Agent Orange or something like that in Vietnam. Right. 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 And right, so right. his skin color changes. And so that that's what made that come to mind, which if anyone's wondering, um, thankfully, that idea was like killed uh, in in. Um, in discussions in DC, although the I do think that could be its own episode, though I the, think I think we should. <laughs> oh, it absolutely. Um, should I think be. I think uh, Michael Betts uh, actually uh, talked to me about that. Like, hey, don't you think? Yeah. Don't you think? So we should we should put a pin yeah. in that. We should definitely do something. On we'll that. we'll return to it because there's a lot to unpack there having to do with like the creation of um of Black Lightning and all that. But anyway, so moving forward. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. So, um. I uh, taking a break from GI Joe in general, though, this uh, the story of GI Joe has a lot to do with advertising, but unconventional forms of advertising. Obviously, the idea of advertising is to persuade people to go against their current set of interests and and persuade them to like reach out and consume a product or something like that, that they either aren't consuming enough of or aren't consuming at all and get them to consume it. Right. And, um, it's the most legal form of mind control that is possible. Right. And, and probably the only real effective form of mass mind control is like this idea of persuasion through mass media. Right. Just, Um, just as a footnote here, it's worth noting for anyone who's not familiar with the history of mass communication studies, 
or mass media studies that uh, it started circa, like as we understand it now, the field uh, began circa like the 1930s, 1940s as a result of um, efforts in developing the most effective propaganda. Uh, this is where we get yeah. like the Chicago School of uh, Communication and whatnot, where, which was not an actual school. It was a network of uh, intellectuals and professors. It was a in, think tank. It was a think tank, right, in the uh, Chicago area, many of whom had worked for like the uh, U.S. government in the 1930s and 40s, looking at how effective propaganda was uh, or was not, and testing the idea of what's called the hypodermic needle or the uh, silver bullet theory, which was one message in, one message out as a one-to-one -one exchange um, that you could program a population that way. That idea was always tested, but it was never supported. That being said, um, like <laughs> it's always worth noting that like what informs our our mass media. Uh, attempts at, at commercial marketing and all that kind of stuff now is absolutely still this idea of we know mass media exerts influence over people. It's not uh, strictly speaking control, but boy, howdy, uh, is it a significant amount of influence? And there's all kinds of theories that get into the, the how and the why and the what of it. But uh, at the very least, we know that humans respond to stimuli, right? And this is yeah. just the engineering of responding in a favorable way, or at the very least, um, in a in a uh, least unfavorable way as possible. Yeah, yeah, and and I would argue that uh, today's advertising industry probably knows more and is more familiar with and and has more um, more research on that exact process of how people are persuaded through media messages mm -hmm. than anywhere else, better than academia, better than any oh, yeah. uh, scientific or governmental institution because they have the resources to study this stuff. They're also not bound by ethics. Like, and, yeah. and this is a big point. If you are a researcher uh, operating on behalf of a state institution or any other funded, like taxpayer funded institution, you are required by federal law to adhere to an ethics board. In the university setting, we call them IRBs, internal review boards, or HSRBs, human subject review boards. Basically, these are, as I heard one professor put it, um, these are how lawyers have protected civilians from scientists because of all yeah. the god awful <laughs> things that scientists and researchers have done over the years. <laughs> um, right. And so if you receive taxpayer funding, you have to be subject to an ethics review board. That being said, if you are working for a private corporation, you are under no such obligation. Um, and so you can do things like, oh, uh, God, Facebook got in trouble uh, for, message, for messing with the uh, feed uh, for people, like seeing if it affected mood. Right. And like depressive states and things like that. So like this happened a couple of years ago, um, Facebook took a, a sample size of their users, uh, a population of their users, and then intentionally augmented their uh, Facebook feeds to boost negative material, stuff that was upsetting <laughs> or depressing or things like that to see if yeah. it had a demonstrable and quantifiable effect on their behavior through things like their engagement, through their comments and what have you. And that would absolutely not fly at all right. in a uh, in a research institution like a university. But right. because Facebook um, has no they, oversight, they, they're that, not yeah. concerned about harm. Absolutely. Could you could you say? And their legal defense was, <laughs> well, you when you agreed to the terms and conditions, you consented to this kind of manipulation. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Ha. yeah. So good. So good. Well, yeah. the, this idea of advertising to children has off it has. 
I mean, there's nothing new about our concern about advertising to children. Like uh, institutions in general have often kind of looked at advertising and its tactics and said, hmm, so this is cool and all, but with children... I don't know how I feel about you using these same tactics on kids, right? Especially in a mass mediated sort of way. And uh, it hasn't always been because we know what it does to kids. Uh, at least early on, it's more like we don't yet know what advertising in a mass media context does to children. So we're not going to allow it in certain circumstances in certain ways. Um, and so, uh, advertising to children has been the most regulated advertising um, demographic, uh, at least in the United States. Um, but that's not to say that, uh, you know, like things haven't uh, been a little weird here and there. We, we are still the United States. It didn't take researchers very long to to learn that, like, advertising to children um is incredibly effective and also there's the greatest potential for damage yes <laughs> uh, to yes. children because of how effective it is right yes. so uh two two main conclusions this comes from uh the apa the american psychological association's um comprehensive study over um the, the effects of advertising on children they, they they basically identified that researchers over over the last several decades have learned pretty comprehensively that uh, children lack two main cognitive skills. The, the first cognitive skill set is that they need to be able to distinguish between commercial and non-commercial media. Mm -hmm. And that, that children, particularly uh, four to five years old, lack the capability to distinguish between what mm -hmm. is commercial and what is their main programming right and sure. and and they just they can't comprehend it they they mm -hmm. see a distinction there there is certainly something different about this media that i'm watching but it's all entertainment like it's yeah. it's just it's it's all the same stuff sure. this one's more fun than this one or this one is more exciting or this one has more sounds or whatever but it's all just part of the show right mm -hmm. um and that as children get older that ability to distinguish between the two increases, but it doesn't. It's not like one day, it's you, you reach six years old and suddenly you can distinguish the differences between them, right? Right. It's a gradual thing over time, which also means that like as they're developing that skill set, they are simultaneously consuming this media, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And and closely related to it, but distinctly different. The second cognitive skill that that children lack is the ability to recognize the persuasive intent of advertising. That even if they can say correctly label, they can be taught this is advertising, this is not. Mm -hmm. Their ability to recognize the persuasive intent of advertising and to understand and unpack the layers of messaging that that and what the motives are behind it, especially consistently. Sure. Like maybe you can train them to recognize like this, you know, the the Lucky Charms character just wants me to spend money on their cereal and they don't care if it's good or whatever. Sure. Um, but even then, it's more like they're just, you know, regurgitating back some rote, taught sentiments about the Lucky Charms character, you sure. know? At best, it's it's mimicry or imitation as opposed to genuine um, intellectual incorporation. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, 
Researchers have particularly been concerned about this, obviously, because as mass media has become more accessible over the decades, uh, you know, children are being exposed to longer and longer stints of media mm -hmm. and and media that and, and the longer they're exposed to this media, the more and more likely this media is not being mediated by their parents, mm -hmm. you know, or by by their families. It's it's something that they spend you know are are our parents really spending the three four to six hours a day with their kids watching everything that their kids are watching and commenting on it and talking about it with them and stuff like that no obviously not right, right? it's yeah uh, you just don't have time it's a it's a it's an effective babysitting tool that, yeah. uh yeah you just like here kid here's your show see, mm -hmm. see yeah i gotta i gotta <laughs> like send these emails or whatever right listen uh, um, my kid was homesick the other day and uh, we started off with Moana in the morning, um, which, as a side note, my daughter insists I look like, which is, I'm not sure how to it, feel about it. It's not the first time it, I've heard it. Take you it. Know? It could be worse. It could be. It could be worse. But she also <laughs> says that because of that, I need more tattoos. Um, hey, you know what? So I'm good with that. Um, Maybe you do. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get Polynesian tattoos. That would be inauthentic to me. But, uh, <laughs> honey, yeah. uh, I have it from uh, reliable sources that I need more I tattoos. Need, I will. What's What's funny about that is I'm currently in the process of uh, finishing a half sleeve um, on my left arm. My daughter's yeah. like, you know what you need is more. It's like, all right, kid. All right. <laughs> I was trying to buy you a house, but okay, let's uh, let's get more tattoos Take instead. It. Just take it. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So obviously, like, if if you have an audience that um, has the ability to, or has the inability to distinguish between advertising content and regular programming, and also cannot uh, distinguish or comprehend the the uh, persuasive intent of advertising, even even if they can understand. Um, the what is an advertisement that's a that's a population that's primed to just like accept the messaging mm -hmm. right away right mm -hmm. hook line and sinker they're, they're gonna they're gonna be told that this is in their best interest well shoot this is in my best interest i yeah. you know i uh, what better way to to make someone feel like they came up with an idea when they can't comprehend what the idea what the intent behind the idea that they were hearing in the first place right absolutely so it's a really great article that's done by it's it's an advertising blog, but one that is uh, I, I would say like the I'm not like the other girls advertising blog. We're, we're trying to we're trying to be the we're the good advertising voices. We're, we're trying to be the more ethical advertising the, voices, the least reprehensible. Yeah, advertising <laughs> and obviously there's 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 a lot of good things that actually come from this, but this is from Better Marketing, um, particularly from J Jamie Logie, who talks about uh, the the effectiveness of advertising to kids. And this is I I, I like his write up of it. it. This is not something that Jamie came up with on on his own this is fairly well understood thing but this this idea of what's called pester power is uh, a, a recognized thing in advertising and uh, becomes part of the calculation for advertising to children that like we understand that in a um <clears throat> traditional patriarchal household this is kind of how how advertising has transformed over 
um, over the past century, really. Uh, the uh, traditional advertisers uh, marketed to the husbands of the home because mm-hmm. they they uh, saw them as the breadwinner and the one that controlled. They were the gatekeeper to the money of the house, and sure. so um, advertising about toys and things like that were kind of aimed a little bit at the dad, you know, or, or, uh, household items mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, even some women's clothing advertising was, was aimed at like with this understood, like we know the husband is going to be the one that we need to appeal to for this. Sure. It was, it, and so th- there's, there's that. And then once, once advertising er, advertising shifted after a while when they learned that, hey, you know what? We don't actually need to appeal to the gatekeeper of the money. And that, hey, you know, actually there's quite a, a market expansion opportunity here if we recognize that that patriarchal tradition is not actually replicated across all families that, hey, actually, right. you know, w- women control uh, a substantial amount of money in a lot of households around the country. And so they shifted their advertising, right? And so they shifted their advertising to uh, focus on women. That, this, this is a good know, example. Women, I'm sorry. This is a good example of how better research and theoretical development leads to less than noble ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh it, it's it's one of those things that like it's it's okay to have mixed feelings on. It's like great. I'm glad that advertising finally woke up and recognized that uh, you know like women are real people. But it also yeah. just the end result is cool. More more money spent for the company that really doesn't care one way or the other. <laughs> it really is like the invention of fire and some people going. You know we can use this to like you know, make things and forge stuff and cook our food and other people going, I'm going to set shit on fire like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like that. Um, so, uh, one, one of the things that also changed and revolutionized advertising was obviously this understanding that, Hey, we don't, we could actually advertise directly to children and, Will there? They actually have influence over what money gets spent, regardless of who the breadwinner is in the family. That children have an influence over the the buying habits of our consumers. That like people will change what kind of car they choose to purchase based on how the kids behave in the car or how functional the space is for how parents interact with kids and stuff like that. Hence the minivan and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, pester power is this idea that children, particularly in the grocery store, when when the, you know uh, ground zero for for advertising, um, children actually their behavior in the store changes how how people buy things, right? And shut up, kid! Here's your lollipop. Mm-hmm. Sort of uh, that's that's pester power, sure, right? And sure. so that's that's why that's why. All the candy is stuffed up right next to the cash register, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have this important transaction about to take place. I have I have my money in hand and I have all these groceries that I need mm-hmm. and I'm about to go uh you know like make sure that the the total is accurate like as they're scanning my groceries that all the totals are actually uh, you know, what they said at the shelf and so on, you know, that, that whole deal. And then I got to pay for it, make sure I'm not, make sure I'm paying the right amount, make sure I'm getting my change back, whatever it might be. And 
you know, my lovely children, the angels that they are, are constantly berating me with questions about the gum and the, the, can I get a Twix bar? Can I get this? Or this one, this one, you know, rotates, (laughs) this one rotates the the sucker while, you know, if you press this button. uh, Whoever said that you don't negotiate with terrorists clearly did not understand children. Or raise them. Um, and I will say this, it, it's it's kind of funny. I find that the best solution to that is to have no shame at all. Uh, go ahead, kid, make a scene. I don't care. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, but but, <laughs> but honestly, in all seriousness, like it's um it's tough because like uh you know if you if you stop and think about it, like if you understand that children are human beings, right? Uh, and they're as given to, to they're just given to impulse in the way that yeah. honestly most of us are. Right. Yeah. Uh, it it becomes you know that much easier to justify and rationalize it, uh, and you know also there's aspect of appeasement as well, but certainly yeah that that makes a degree of sense, especially because like man I'm thinking about this in time and space like my mom used to drag me on like two or three hour like grocery store like runs yeah right go oh, l- totally aisle by aisle looking for yeah. you know everything and then by the end of it like you're exhausted if you have a kid they're exhausted they're already in a yeah. bad mood it's like all right look here i'm gonna get you a snickers and i'm gonna get a coke and god we need the sugar to not be hateful to each other <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing keeping our relationship together is this like five ounces of sugar we're about to consume mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no it's real it's real I, I i think uh jamie's uh write-up of of this um is is particularly yeah it it it, it scans with everything we're talking about he says remember whining crying for something uh, remember whining and crying for something you wanted more than life itself such as a certain toy cereal or candy more often than not you would end up getting it um i i remember rolling around in, on the floor in the cereal aisle screaming for cookie crisp i was 23 at the time but that's not the point <laughs> uh, he talks about how you know the the 60s uh was was where we started to see this big shift in in advertising to children that like we're going to reach out to children and actually try and make this uh appeal to them in it and it's not like advertising to children hasn't happened before the 60s but the 60s things ramped up and yeah. and the the market shifted quite a bit and that's that's where um, we, we get a lot of these nostalgic characters, or, or that's the beginning of where we get a lot of these nostalgic characters um, uh, of like cereal brands and things like that. That like if we can if we can blur the line between entertainment and advertising, and then get them hooked on this character, then the, then children are going to reinforce their relationship with this character through their nagging purchasing habits right i like mm-hmm. spongebob that juice box has spongebob on it i am going to be closer to spongebob if we get the juice box with spongebob on it right yeah i i will say this in that same vein um that uh if you recall charlie the tuna from Starkist tuna <laughs> yes right who uh appeared in the 1960s um i have often wondered over the years, especially because my, my mom has talked about like how fun, how funny it is to see those commercials now because they were the yeah. commercials of her youth. Like, yeah, what message was it sending kids to have a anthropomorphic tuna fish um, selling like tuna to other people? Right. <laughs> and that part of his narrative arc is he just wants to be good enough to be in a can of tuna. 
And it's like, there is a lot of really <laughs> like dark stuff happening here. And no wonder, like, like the, the Gen Xers are, are as screwed up as they are. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Like one of your beloved childhood memories is of a, uh, uh, commercialized again ethromorphic tuna that one wants to die and two yeah. <laughs> is trying to sell his dismembered and reconstituted compatriots to you at home like oh my what? all right man whose only aspirations are to either be worthy of being consumed by you yes or or just please if i'm not worthy at least consume my brothers and sisters yeah i mean that i mean look i've known a lot of people who have experimented with recreate with recreational drugs nothing sounds as worthy of like a schedule one classification as that kind of commercial all right i <laughs> love it i love it it sounds like a doctor who episode honestly <laughs> It, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let, let's let's take it back to uh, what happened to us <laughs> in general. The, the uh, when it comes to cartoons for kids, obviously companies and the government haven't always seen eye to eye. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like like I said, we've we've regulated children's advertising or advertising specifically to children more than any other type of advertising that we that we've ever done. Um, the FCC uh, has to make sure there aren't too many ads. Uh, during shows made for children, uh, there's usually been like a time limit limit uh, uh, per hour for, you know, for every hour of children's programming, only so many minutes can be mm -hmm. dedicated to advertising and so on. Mm -hmm. um, between 1964 and 1983, when the FCC released uh, the Blue Book, which was a document aimed at limiting commercial airtime, the FCC did a pretty good job at enforcing it, even though some broadcasters found ways to ignore the rules. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, uh, in or, well, in 1963, the FCC lost an important fight against broadcasters, which meant they couldn't make or enforce any rules about the length um, or number of commercials. And uh, finally, in 1974, it was decided that the FCC would regulate advertising to a maximum of 16 minutes per hour on any TV show. So that's just like an example of like how, yeah. you know, how the regulation has kind of ebbed and flowed. But in general, the, 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 it's usually been by time limit for advertising. TV was generally pretty well regulated up until uh, our our buddy Ronald Reagan was uh, elected president. Friend and, of the show, Ronald Reagan, yes. Yeah. When Ronald Reagan looked at the state of children's television programming and its regulations, instead of measuring whether or not this was helping children... He obviously looked at it and said, "Hey, why, why, why aren't we letting companies make more money? What, what, what? Wait, this is clearly a violation yep. of our constitutional rights here. Um, yep. Everyone's suffering because companies are not making as much profit as possible. If we, so, if we can't send these children into mines to pull their weight, the least we could do is let them be exploited <laughs> by toy companies. Let's." If we can't get the children to mine, let us mine the children. <laughs> <laughs> let us That's... mine the children. That's a shirt we need to make. Uh, <laughs> there's an unofficial Ronald Reagan quote. Yeah. Um, well, he 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 
obviously, and obviously, children's advertising was not the only thing that he deregulated. But this was a, a pretty culturally uh, influential thing that that he did, and I don't think he recognized nor cared the kind of cultural influence that this would have. But uh, you know, he yeah. he appointed Mark Mark Fowler as FCC chair, and uh, immediately dropped the the rules on children's advertising. It was the Wild West at that point. N- nothing. He everything was, was everything was cool. He was elected in 80, right? Um I believe so. Yeah. And and in 81 is when children's uh advertising regulations were cut. He man and the masters of the universe. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a whole era of children's programming was born through this deregulation process. Mm-hmm. And one of the first shows that was created in this sort of opportunistic, hey, there's no regulation going on there in the United States for for uh, children's programming. We can do whatever the hell we want is uh, Pac-Man. Pac-Man was one of the first product oriented uh, children's programming. Uh, there, there was the the Pac Man show, and I, I had never I, seen it. I didn't yeah. know that there was an early Pac Man show. I forgot until right this moment that yes, there was a Pac Man <laughs> show. I, yeah, you're right. Was, I remember watching like a Pac Man holiday special or something along those lines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's uh, yeah. Nintendo got together with Hanna Barbera and and said, hey. We got this opportunity. Let's 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 make love, and they birthed the Pac-Man show. And um, you know, it's this little yellow circle going around doing the things that little yellow circles do. You know, avoiding them ghosts (laughs) (laughs) until he gets a power up. In which case, then he attacks the ghosts. No, absolutely no. I remember that cartoon. Golly, man. Listen. Well, it, and it coming from Hanna Barbera had a pretty familiar um, yeah. animation style, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's and, and voice casting and everything. So there's a, an ounce of familiarity and a with it. A certain amount as of well. industrial clout. I mean, Hanna Barbera was a big name for cartoon production. Yeah, like one of the biggest animation yeah. studios in the world at the time. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, the, these things uh, started popping out and, and uh, toy companies implemented various tactics to ensure profitability. Obviously, typically they, they developed the, uh, the toy first and then produced an animated program to promote the toy line. Transformers is probably the mm-hmm. most notorious example of this, that oh, like yeah. um, Japanese toy manufacturer wanted to jump into the United States market and saw this. Uh, this deregulation as uh, an opportunity to effectively uh, introduce a toy line that was unfamiliar with a U.S. audience entirely, right? right? Transforming robotic toys, and because uh, nothing else was really on the market at the time like that. Yeah, this is and, this is pre Gundam uh, United States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's yes. How, that's how the, I that's how I measure uh, the, the dark ages. The, well, that's how I measure American chronology. Is there's there's yes. pre Endless waltz and then post endless waltz. Yes, um, for the for the two people who will get that joke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, but the impact of deregulation on children's programming was was pretty staggering, um, with about three hundred percent increase in licensed character cartoons between nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty five. I mean, it just mm-hmm. like. Oh, yeah. Blew up, and mm-hmm. according to cultural historian Tom Englehart. Um, 
By the end of 1985, over 40 animated series were airing simultaneously with licensed products and marketing campaigns. I mean, before this era, children's programming was like Captain Kangaroo and things like that. Yeah. Like, um, certainly effective programming for kids at the time. Obviously, we look back on it and make jokes about it, but like for children's programming, children weren't complaining about it. Like, you know, and parents weren't either. This was, this was effective children's programming that was doing the job that TV children's programming does. And it Um, it wasn't all Sesame street, but it certainly wasn't, you know, what we would get much later. Right. Right. And, and so like this shift was a drastic change for television programming in general, but particularly for kids. Like, night and day difference. Captain Kangaroo could not hold any water with this kind of programming going mm-hmm. on. So shows like He-Man and Masters of the Universe in 1983, a collaboration between Filmation and Mattel, became some of the most popular animated shows in TV history. Others like Marvel and Hasbro creation Transformers uh, continue to sell products to this day. The lucrative market uh, for girls was also targeted. We had shows like My Little Pony, which was developed uh, with the help of Hasbro. We have Get Along Gang, The Popples, Rainbow Bright were all aimed at a, a girl's market, right? And um, we later on, the Care Bears... Uh, and Gem, I don't know if you ever saw Gem. That's a Hasbro uh, development as well. Um, I mean, the consequences of de- deregulation um, of children's content meant that stories were often shallow and cookie cutter, uh, good versus evil storylines, obviously, um, that often lacked backstory or depth of characters. Um, because the primary driving force behind these shows were product sales, whenever there were uh, successes, imitators would emerge from. Uh, competitors to cash in on the phenomenon. So, I mean, this is nothing new that we haven't seen. Like, obviously, uh, once someone finds a formula that works, we see replications of that over and over and over again. We see that in movies all the time. Thundercats. What? Thundercats. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Buddy. Thundercats was part of this. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, but like uh, using Transformers as an example, uh, Tonka from Tonka Trucks decided to to cash in on this phenomenon as well mm-hmm. and they created Challenge of the Gobots. I don't know if you you remember that one at all. Um Gobots that's another one of those that rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it aired in 1984 and it basically shared the same plot points as Transformers. It was uh, outer space robots that continued their centuries-long conflict on Earth with the help of humans and um Funny thing is that even um, even with that, there were other uh, you know versions of the same thing as well, like uh, dino saucers. <laughs> obviously, did not last long, <laughs> but yeah. uh, that was a Lightyear and Coca Cola combination. But it was basically instead of robots, it's just dinosaurs. So dinosaurs with centuries long conflict uh, from outer space come to Earth and like continue their. Uh, their warfare on Earth with humans, right? I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm having all these flashbacks to cartoons. Like I just thought of, and again, I've thought about this in years. But like, um, if you remember this, uh, biker mice from Mars, yeah. right? Oh, gosh, or, I remember that. Or street, that one's so bad. Or yeah, it was or street sharks. Yes, yes. Yep. Like street I, sharks. oh man, I can't tell you how how like it, validating it was as a kid to get a street sharks uh, uh, action figure, like. 
Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. 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 Uh, or the other one that came to mind, cause I had to look this up. So part of what comes to mind as we're talking about this is that not just this boom in commercialized, like basically long form advertisements is what they are, yeah. but also yeah. how this sort of like made other products or properties viable in ways that they might not yes. have been. So like yes. uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the comic first comes out in 1984, but the TV yeah, show doesn't go. happen until 1987. Night. Right. Yes. And so you've yeah. got a few years of it running and then the the success of all this, I'm guessing, probably paved a way for a show like that to be on the air. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of our 90s programming is coming off of the high of what we call the golden age of deregulation or not what we call it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, advertisers called the golden yeah. age of deregulation. Um, which was roughly between 1983 and 1989. So yep. even Ninja Turtles is swept up in that sort of uh, phenomenon for sure. But our 90s programming, I mean, we we eventually got some regulation for children's programming back in place during the 90s. But man, it was never the same ever since, right? Sure, like the, yeah. it, it's it, you, you let it out of the box sort of a thing and it's it's out. Once it's out, it, you know, and and ever since then, there's been um, more boldness to find ways around that regulation and and to find ways to. In in fact, even the syndication of Transformers has been a way to get around current uh, regulation. It's been uh, or 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 even GI Joe. Uh, one station I can't remember. I, w- I was reading through different uh, sources. One station uh, skirted the uh, the uh, regulations about uh, educational content for children's programming by re-airing old episodes of GI Joe because hmm. they said it's it's a cultural historic um, artifact from uh, from the past and it brings up topics from the past that uh, are relevant today. And so therefore it's educational and uh, by golly, GI Joe is going to save us. What an absolute load of horse shit. I know. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and um, yeah, who knew that, uh, you know, the, the, the cartoon G.I. Joe was going to be likened to the History Channel, which I, just, I also argue is not very helpful. I either. would. I just can't wait for, for Ken Burns to do a History of American Conflict um, documentary that includes the the G.I. Joe on the front oh lines, right? Like, yeah. oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean— some of the some of the questions that are brought up are are uh, around the impact of all this is obviously like what obviously we don't have a bunch of well I mean it depends on on how you feel about uh, Gen Xers but uh, we don't have a bunch of uh, deranged psychopaths running around uh, because of the children's programming that they watched or do we. <laughs> <laughs> giving me the side eye as I say that. All I'm saying is there's a non-zero chance that this stuff has helped to create <laughs> a like in the in the in the in the you know social sciences you can never like say with rarely can you say definitively that one thing led to another. It's kind of like those arguments over whether or not video games actually cause violence and uh, or children to act violently because there's this whole like um, is a uh, in lab uh, study the same as a environment uh, as a in environment study that kind of thing. I'm just saying, I I won't go so far as to say that like biker mice from Mars inspired people to uh, engage in violent behavior. I will say that 
probably informed some decisions along the way. In, in that regard, yeah. I mean, if we're trying to find a, a bad evil villain that has been born from this era of, of advertising to, to kids, I, I, I think it's going to be pretty hard to find that. But I think that's kind of... Th- that's the measure that advertisers yeah. and industry would generally like us to use to measure whether or not this is because it's it's just you cannot sure. fully measure that thing. But I think I think there is something to be said about um, the global pollution epidemic that we're dealing with, where you know, like ma- the manufacturing of these products has measurably not been good for all of us, right? Sure. And the general discussion around environmentalism and things like that, that is decades old, is that, well, golly, if those consumers would stop buying bad things, then, you know, we wouldn't make them anymore. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is a pretty good illustration of how if the manufacturers didn't make the things mm-hmm. there wouldn't be things to be bought right like we, sure. the that populations such as children and uh just regular joe schmoes trying to live their lives with their families are just trying to find satisfaction in life and that satisfaction can be found in any number of places but when the options presented to them are he-man action figures yeah or as as a working class person trying to just you know live my life and have have a happy family mm-hmm. it's not it's not absurd to expect that person to reach out and grab the he-man character and play with their kids and have a good time you or know the, or the captain planet action figures that are you know ostensibly yeah. trying to advance some sort of pro-social message while also creating tons of plastic waste uh Exactly. Exactly. And, and, uh, it's, it's a, unfortunately I feel like it's a, a needle that needs to be threaded quite finely, but I, I think, I, I wish it was more obvious than, it, than it obviously is to make these sorts of points. But I, I feel like we were fine before this deregulation took place that like, uh, there were problems. I'm, but in terms of this specific issue of, of um, pollution and, and the manufacturing of products that at, at such a wide scale that it like becomes yeah. uh, He-Man actually impacting the, you know, the ecology of our oceans and everything. I, I, it, it's clear that people will be persuaded by the media that they consume and that the regulation was actually helping our environmental efforts um, more effectively than any sort of messaging about consumers shaming and blaming consumers for following the advice of the media that they are given. Yeah, it, it's one of those things, and we've talked about this before, about how you know we make uh, decisions based on the information available to us. And the truth right. is that uh, so much of the world around us is represented to us through mass-mediated forms, and that includes entertainment and recreation, right? Like, um, the the truth of the matter is, like, if I have, you know, three different options for what to do with my kid on the weekend as some kind of, like, outing, and two of those options are centered around pop media that she really enjoys, and the other option is something else that, like, eh, she might get something out of, but honestly is, like, not going to be as satisfying for her, the, the deck is already stacked against me to pick one of those two options um, right, over something right. that may 
actually have more long form benefit to her. And also not for nothing, a lot of these things, I think about this in particular with like, um, going to like the, the whole on ice genre of media. Right. So like uh, whenever they, uh, whenever they adapt (laughs) Lion King on ice, right. Disney on ice or, or whatever else GI Joe on ice, like, or when we went, I took my, you know, kid to go see Paw Patrol because she absolutely loves Paw Patrol. Um, things like that. Like a lot of this is also media that you go and you sit down to attend. It doesn't require a lot of effort on my part. And if I've worked a 40 to 50, maybe 60 hour work week and like I have the opportunity to like entertain her while getting outside the house and also not doing something at the same time. Like, man, that is a compelling case. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. And, uh, you know, I I, not for nothing. I, I think that there is some significance about how even in our geek media spaces uh, a lot of the promotional and advertising um the advertising efforts that are made in these geek media spaces are trying to persuade us that this is this media that we're consuming or this media that we're participating in either by buying these products or whatnot are aimed at trying to convince you no no this is taking you back to the good old days, the days where things oh, yeah. were great. Remember, remember the Transformers when you were watching them as a kid? Remember how wonderful that was? Let's continue that and let's keep going with it, right? Like, let's let's not stop that golden age of deregulation, sure. if you will. And then let's bring your children into this own relationship with it as you share something nostalgic from your youth with them. Right, 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 right. And, and so I, I think it's something that should... Uh, while there is an awful lot that is culturally relevant and and important about sharing in these cultural artifacts that that have come about regardless of why they came about obviously it's a shared history that we have now we uh, you know certain segments of geek media really enjoyed the GI Joe and the Transformer era and and the the Conan the Barbarian and the the She-Ra and the He-Man sort of era of of storytelling there were stories there however shallow they were when they were being told whatever like that that's uh sure the there is something significant there. So I, I, I definitely don't want to err on the side of saying like we should feel shame for participating in this media. Right. But I do think it's healthy to kind of look at like why it was created in the first place and why is it still being perpetuated? Because it's not a grassroots effort mm-hmm. that's keeping this media relevant and keeping the the uh, toys being sold and 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 rebooting the the series over and over and over again, or making motion picture films out of it. Right, that's mm-hmm. not a grassroots thing. That's not the people saying this is important to me. This is what's that's this is what is culturally uh, important. Right. This is also a mediated space mm-hmm. that has been going since the eighties. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost kind of like, not to draw too stark a contrast here, but when people say, yeah, I got, you know, my parents beat me as a kid and I turned out fine. No, no, you're not okay. <laughs> you are not okay. And so yeah. those of us are like, yeah, I grew up on this kind of uh, media and I turned out fine. Mm, are you? Are you really? Yeah. You know, there's some deep <laughs> introspection right. that has to be involved here, which you would like to think is kind of the default setting for being a parent anyway. 
right? Like if you're right. going to if you're going to have the responsibility of reproducing and and uh, creating another human being, that you should engage in some introspection about how you are as a person and what you're going to pass on to your kid, and that includes how you choose to recreate, right? How yeah, you choose to yeah. engage in recreation, what that means, you know. Well, I also think in terms of just us, let's let's keep our kids out of the discussion for a little bit. I, I, there's also an aspect of it that's like, why are we like how much of this is us actually liking the the show or the characters or whatever? Oh, yeah. And how much of this has been marketed to us as something that we like? Right. Sure. And it seems kind of simplistic to characterize it like that. But in another sense, we know that geek media spaces or geek geek spaces that celebrate geek media of whatever sort, um, that uh, one of the biggest ways of being able to participate in those is through proving your, your, yourself mm -hmm. through the consumption of this media, right? And so we buy the t-shirts, we buy the, the toys, we have the models set up everywhere. We, we, we make sure that these signifiers are around us so that we can prove that, no, I'm not just a casual observer. Yeah. I live this, right? It's, and so that consumption is kind of a, a um, ticket into the game and it, that, that we often feel like we have to do in order to be able to participate. Yeah, it's a matter of authenticity and credentials, right? I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. made some videos about uh, some comic book stuff on TikTok and some guy, you know, just like led left these like dissertation length comment threads about how yeah. I wasn't a real nerd because, you know, where are my long boxes of comics and stuff? It's like, well, first of all, I'm recording from my bookshelf. Second, I have comics. I, they're not in long boxes necessarily, but I certainly don't have the vast collection of it because also I've got kids and I don't have space for that in my <clears throat> home. And third, right, right. maybe you've heard of the internet. You can buy things digitally now and read things there. Um, but but it, yeah. it is that aspect of like the need to recreate the um it's almost like a ritual uh, right yeah. of consumerism for this sort of stuff to lend right. yourself credibility otherwise you're not a real fan however that's you know choose uh, chosen to be defined um so yeah and that also then gets into things like you know uh when you have when when you do have children or when you relate to other people and like uh their interaction with those same material objects and whatnot if you have them around the house um <clears throat> but yeah i think that well it, it it's also like look real these are real communities of people like yes. whether it's it's based on fandom whether it's based on participation in a game whether it's your these are real communities that actually provide real social benefits right sure and and because of that though one of the consequences is that because it's hinged because these communities are often based around media of some sort and and the products that deviate from that right so let's let's say it's a transformers community of some sort and your fandom of uh, it, of transformers is your shared link between you and the other people that are part of the community and you're active in it and so on i mean i think a healthy thing to interrogate is how much of this do i like and how much of the the community is is sure. the reason why i'm here yeah. right and and like what is <clears throat> what is the price of that ticket into the community mm -hmm. and and um should that price include constant consumption of these things that that we were trained as children 
um, from an early age to, to participate in? And, and is that still required as adults? Do we really need to consume like we were encouraged when we were children uh, in order to be able to be a part of these communities that are now meaningful and, and help and, and, and so on, right? Like sure. um, League of Legends, uh, there was a study done on folks who participate in League of Legends that uh, those who par- actively participate in League of Legends um, regularly uh, benefited uh, in the same ways socially um, and personally from that community that uh, anyone would in any uh, non-virtual community. Uh, they, they had there were lower rates of suicide. There were lower rates of depression. There were lower rates of mm-hmm. all sorts of um, social welfare criteria. And and those, so these communities are real. Like they oh, they're yeah. not just no, uh, silly playthings. Um, I I just wonder about like how how much are we making these communities hinge on our overconsumption of things that are not actually what the community is about in the first place. Yeah. Um... It's also, to me, when I listen to what you're saying, it also brings in mind the idea of relevance still. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah. like, to what extent is this property still relevant to my life? Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and one of the things I think that uh, kind of gets a bad rap is the term phase, right? When we say that, oh, well, you know, I was going through a phase or the, something like that. It's like, through, yeah. Just, yeah. just because you're going through a phase doesn't mean it's not significant, right? Like, I got into, um, I got into Power Rangers at a, as a kid. Yeah. And it was super important for me. I also started training, uh, doing martial arts when I was around four years old, in large part yeah. because of my godfather. And so in my brain, I associate doing martial arts with watching Power Rangers with my godfather, who was a martial arts instructor. Yeah. <clears throat> and so there's a lot there for me, but it's Power Rangers is no longer relevant to my life now, right? There are people for whom it is, absolutely, and who engage in those fan spaces or derive some other meaning from the text itself. Uh, right. But for myself, at this point, it would just kind of be fetishizing. Uh, the thing a little bit because there's no, like, it just isn't there for me anymore. And it's the same thing with a lot yeah. of other, you know, very important intellectual properties. I, although admittedly in the interest of transparency, I don't mess with fan spaces very much. Like that's not my interests. Um, sure. I've had negative reactions or negative interactions uh, in, in the past. And so I, I tend to avoid them uh, personally, um, which is always like, <laughs> I, I talk about, pop culture and I talk about race and I don't know who's worse in terms of antagonizing me online. Uh, and that is the overt racists or the nerds that are really precious about their things. Right. Yeah. Right, it's honestly right. a bit of a toss up. Um, so yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so no, it's, it's, um, to what extent do we need to keep these rituals of, of consumerism alive? Uh, right. And are they still relevant yeah. to us? And and can we engage in the fan spaces without necessarily having to repeat these uh, consumer practices? Well, and honestly, if, if, if there is a way to be able to change that aspect of these fan spaces, that like your, your consumption is only needed to a point in order to be able to be considered a legitimate member. And I don't know, I'm not the right person to decide what that looks like or anything. Um, But if there is a way to uh, help modify that, um, it actually helps to expand and um, open up the fan space to more folks who actually are legitimate fans who actually could contribute legitimately to the the space. Um, But you know, may not have the 
actual means to consume at the same rate as others. It really becomes sure. a, a gatekeeper, if you will. Economic, I'm looking at you, Star Wars. <laughs> economic class does become a bit of a um, of a barrier here, right? Like yeah. going to yeah, to yeah. your point about Star Wars. Um, sure, you can buy like a, an old VHS tape, right, of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, for that matter. Uh, or you can find some sort of, um, you know physical copy of of the movies and that might cost you less or be more accessible than say a monthly disney plus subscription um right not to mention right. the ability to spend time to engage in that media i yeah. love star wars and will all of my life i have watched very little i will say almost none of the animated material just because one, I, I didn't latch onto it at the time. And two, I just don't have time now to go back and watch things like rebels or clone wars or things like that. Right, it's just right, right. the precious amount of free time that I have now. Does that uh, lack of access in terms of actual time as a resource mean that I'm less of a fan? Am I going to be ridiculed for that? If I engage in online yes. spaces? Oh, almost certainly <laughs> at least by some of the more unfortunate aspects of those, of that community. I won't generalize that to say it's all of them by any means. Um, but that is an aspect to it. But even still, if I had the, if I was a kid now with the same kind of childhood that I had when I, uh, that I grew up with, there's no way in, in nine hells that I have access to like Disney plus. Right. 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 Or that I'd even really be able to um, hunt down and and afford and buy like all twelve of the movies at this point, right? Right, 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 right. Well, and and this kind of gets into an entire other episode that I'm hoping that we can we can really crack into sometime in the future is this idea of uh, the economics of mm. fandom and and what what are what are the costs because the costs don't. The, the costs of fandom aren't equally distributed amongst everyone. And it definitely changes our participation and our identity within these spaces in general. When we do that, we should also talk about ChicanoCon. Um, oh, yeah. Which is uh, Comic-Con, but for uh, Chicanos and, and Latinos, that uh, happens concurrently with Comic-Con and was in large part a response to, one, the cultural barrier. Of if you're a Spanish language, uh, you know, uh, reader of comics and doesn't and don't have English proficiency, and also the economic barrier because it's expensive yeah. to go to Comic Con. But we'll talk about that for it another is. day. Yeah, love it, love it. All right, man. That's that is GI Joe and children's advertising, um, the mining children episode. Good day. <laughs> uh, all right, folks. That'll I guess that'll do us then. Um, Thanks for uh, dropping by the office hours. Uh, and if you want to hear more of this foolishness, you can find me on uh, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at GACruise underscore PhD. Uh, I also have a website, GACruisePhD.com, where you can, you know, see some stuff that, you know, I'm writing and whatnot and, and putting up there. Uh, but otherwise, you know, please, you know, like, review, you know, leave us some reviews or comments or that kind of thing just to help sort of boost our engagement and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, email any questions, comments, concerns, or, um, uh, you know, strongly worded letters of reprimand to Barry at GACruisePhD at gmail.com. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for dropping by the office and we'll catch you next week.